We are going to change in policing. We have to. It has to be a movement that involves everybody. We need to reimagine uh, and refigure out, if you will, um, how we're going to move forward as a country um, and as an organization uh, to make things better for everybody. And that is Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best opening our show, responding to protests against police. She has a lot more to respond to now after a deadly shooting in the so-called CHOP. More on the story a little bit later on in our program. Welcome, everybody, to Seattle News Views and Brews, the Coffee Break podcast that helps you get a better understanding of a changing, changing political landscape in Seattle. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm your host. I'm also a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. Joining me, as always, is Kevin Schofield of Seattle City Council Insight. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Brian. Good to talk to you again. Back at you. Our background noise sponsor is City Grind Espresso from the first floor of City Hall. They are shut down right now because of the coronavirus pandemic, but we definitely appreciate their support, and we would appreciate your support, too. Please look for Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon, and please help us out. We're going to start things off with right here, right now. Okay, so a lot ahead for the Seattle City Council in this fourth week of June, their June 22nd agenda, another crowded one. Amidst all the protest activity over racial inequity, a lot happening there, there is some other business happening too, specifically with regard to affordable housing. So the council will be voting to transfer ownership of about four acres of land in the Mount Baker neighborhood from the University of Washington to the city. This is a building that used to be a laundry facility for the UW, The facility shut down in 2018. A lot of people upset about that, a loss of 100 union jobs. But here we are with labor champion Councilmember Teresa Mosqueda sponsoring this bill. And I'm bringing this up, Kevin, because it might seem like another ho-hum land transfer. But we are talking about possibly 1,000 homes coming out of this. And they're right next to the Mount Baker Light Rail Station. Plus, there's a push for child care, early learning facilities there. In this present day of having so many difficult issues to grapple with, this seems like a relatively easy decision for the council to say yes to something like this. Well, yeah, uh, saying yes is easy and you know a, a super easy part, and they're and they're certainly going to do that. This is a classic example of what's called transitory in development, yep. which is uh, redeveloping or developing some piece of property right near a major transit center, so that uh, you can have a mix of affordable and market rate housing yep. there, but uh, really take advantage of just the, the available transit right there. So you can have a bunch of people who don't need to own a car yeah. right, and can live more cheaply right next to transit and get everywhere that they need to go. And, you know, four acre, and this is, it's about three point, about 3.8 acres. Yes. Um, you know, that, having that much land suddenly available in the middle of the city, right? Yeah. Right next to a transit center is mm-hmm. unheard of. So this is just an amazing, amazing opportunity. And it's going to be a mix of affordable housing and some a little bit of commercial development, as you mentioned, child care. Yeah, which so is a big really, deal for the council really right now. Thing. Certainly a couple new moms on the council. They're talking about this now, a lot. Now, Councilmember Morales, you know, has brought up the point, and she is the, the council member who, whose district this is in. Yes. Has said that, you know, it may take a few years and potentially longer, you know, depending on how things go mm-hmm. for the whole plan for this, for redevelopment of this to get, you know, to get developed 
yeah. so to speak. And Get then, rolling. Yep. And then I contracted out to various organizations to go develop different pieces of it. And she wants to make sure that since, you know, as she put it, this is sort of the gateway to the Mount Baker neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, that it doesn't become basically an eyesore for somewhere between five and 10 years while they wait for it to develop and just sit there as an, you know, a big empty four acres right, right. off of the, right. right off the library station there. So yep. she, she in particular really wants to move fast on this and make sure that the community as a whole has a big say in deciding what goes in there and the time frame for that. Yeah, and we're talking about buildings. We're talking about a 95-foot height limit on these buildings here. So we're talking about a pretty big project here, potentially. I, I Just to touch on this before we move on, Kevin, any concerns still over those 100 jobs lost back in 2018? I know that was an argument that Councilmember Sawant was concerned about there, sort of a robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of what happened here. But we are talking about some really big benefits for the city with this housing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and... Um I mean, I really, they didn't shut down the laundry facility so they could give the land over to the city, right? Mm -hmm. Giving land over to the city was was a benefit that came after the fact. Yeah. The laundry facility, um, you know, it's not like UW doesn't have as much laundry to do as as they did back then. Sure. It's just going to different organizations. I don't think anybody's really tracked down, you know, who's doing UW's laundry now. Right, right, right. So it, it may be that there are a bunch of other union jobs sure. that are just in different organizations rather than in the direct employment of UW. Got it, got it. Yeah. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Just going down the list on the agenda here, the council also looking at uh, repealing the crimes of drug traffic loitering and prostitution loitering. They've been thinking about that for some time. But there was one piece I really did want to key in on here, Kevin. Gig worker hazard pay. So looking at last week, June 15th, the council voted unanimously to require food delivery companies such as Instacart and Grubhub to pay gig workers an extra $250 per order and to do so basically for the duration of the coronavirus civil emergency we're in the middle of here. And we are the first city in the nation to do this. And this is still a developing story, just to give people some background here. So this legislation initially was for $5 per order. It's been dropped down to $250, half of that. It does not apply specifically to ride-sharing services. It initially did so, but it does not. So these transportation network companies, TNCs like Uber and Lyft, the council is working on other legislation for those companies, as we've talked about on this program. Kevin, I know we've been back and forth on this. Were you surprised to see the council move so quickly on this, especially at a time when they really seem to have their hands full with a lot of issues around police reform? Well, I, I think for them, part of the issue was just what's happening in the coronavirus right yeah. now. Where, where got to keep an um, eye on that too. Yeah, where the the you know food delivery folks had to do a bunch of extra cleaning, right? And yeah. the TNC drivers too. The TNC drivers part of it uh, got complicated because there's a simultaneous negotiation going on for a minimum wage. Yes, for them right. Based upon an executive order that the mayor signed last fall around yep. that. So, and so you know the uh, last Monday. The, the council did, you know, three big last minute changes mm-hmm. to this legislation that sort of came out of their, you know, weeks and weeks of negotiations with the various stakeholders around this. So yeah. they they um, reduced it, as you mentioned, from including TNC drivers. They cut mm-hmm. out the TNC drivers. So it was just food and grocery deliveries. Yeah. Um, they cut the rate from $5 a trip down to two fifty dollars a trip. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they... Uh, pass another change, and this is something Morales really pushed hard on, mm-hmm. was to um, not allow the companies to pass that charge on to their customers. Yes, that's a right? big piece of this. And and specifically, she did that actually not for restaurant deliveries, but just for grocery deliveries yes. mm-hmm. because she said she saw that as an essential right now as we're all trying to stay home and, and not pass COVID uh, 
virus along to other people. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that groceries didn't become too expensive for people was something that she saw as, as but, and yet still allow them to stay safe at home and, and, and get their groceries yeah. was, was an important thing for her. Well, just in looking at that, Kevin, do you buy Instacart's side of the story? And I should point out that that company is talking about filing suit against the city of Seattle. Instacart has basically argued that this law is going to put a strain on grocery and food delivery, which are, as they call it, essential services during this time of crisis. How do you look at that? I know we've talked about or we've tried to talk about this other side of the story before, but I think we're on our on our way to seeing another lawsuit for the city bottom line here. Um, you know, it, it could be. I don't know if they'll win or not. I, you know, the question is really, uh, you know, has anybody actually done the math yeah. on uh, other than the company, you know, the, the companies themselves that are doing this kind of delivery as sure. to sort of how the economics of this works out? How yeah. much per trip is Instacart or Postmates or, or these companies making? And yeah, they're, they're not all adding, that forthcoming a, about adding the, another, those, those dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of this is that the drivers have real costs that they yes. actually have to cover out of their own pocket right now, right? They have to clean their vehicle mm-hmm. between trips. Yep. So how much money are they spending and how much of their time do they have to go off the clock right. to go do that? So what's the cost to them to make sure that these vehicles are clean and not transmitting COVID? Yeah, so much happening with the four hire businesses in Seattle right now. So we'll definitely keep track on what happens with the TNCs there as that moves into some of the drivers for Uber and Lyft. Thanks for that input, Kevin. Let's move on to Now Hear This. All right, so this is where we listen into something our local leaders have said over the past week. And this time around, we're talking about generating revenue. A few plans are emerging here, and it's difficult to juggle all these, but we'll try to break this down as we can through the program here. I want to talk first about Councilmember Mosqueda's plan to tax the payroll of big businesses. It's called Jumpstart Seattle. It would raise about $86 million this year, 200 per year in years to come. It would apply to companies with annual Seattle-based payrolls of at least $7 million and would only tax the compensation of employees making $150,000 or more. Those are very important pieces. We're going to come back to them. But first, Councilmember Mosqueda's rationale. She says, after the state failed to pass a regional big business tax a few months ago during the short session, it's now up to the city of Seattle to come through. Here's what she said. The state legislature may reconvene a special session soon, but we don't have a lot of um, indication that they will be taking up progressive revenue at this point. So to um, to us falls the responsibility to step up and make sure that there's sufficient revenue. Okay, Kevin, this is one of those, stop me if you've heard this one before situations for me. Jumpstart Seattle sounds a lot like the tax Amazon plan. And while it might not have the same name, Amazon appears to be very much singled out here when you look at how this is a tiered tax. These companies in the so-called top tier at a billion dollars in payroll per year would pay the most. So what company in our city is paying out a billion dollars per year? I I think it's Amazon, right? Are there other people it, on that it's, list? It's certainly Amazon, maybe Boeing. Okay, but, okay. But depending on how many employees they officially have down at Boeing Field. Yeah, right. Um, but, but, you know, they're also just announced that they're cutting a lot of that back. So yeah, it may right. be that by the end of this year, they're below that. So yeah. it, it certainly looks like the top tier of this, companies mm-hmm. that have a billion dollars or more of Seattle-based payroll, is really one company. So. Yeah. And, and that's going to be a legal issue for this because it really looks like this is designed to, to be punitive to Amazon. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's difficult to exa- to figure out exactly where these numbers are because, again, we're uh, we're looking at this, and the the Office of Economic Development doesn't have those direct numbers from the companies. So I know Councilmember Mosqueda is still working on this to try to figure out who is in that top tier here, but it certainly looks like Amazon up there. I, I did want to point out there, while that is a similarity between her plan and the Sawant Morales plan, there are some differences here. Can we break some of those down? What did you see as the main differences between the Mosqueda plan and the Sawant Morales plan? Other than it looks like Councilmember Mosqueda's plan actually has some support, broader support on the council. Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. Uh, Mosqueda's plan altogether, um, well, you know, while for the reasons we talked about is even more of an Amazon tax than, than, yeah. than Sawant's, mm-hmm. um, it, it, at, at the same time, is really trying to focus much more on um, on the companies that have been more successful mm. in the area. You know, the re- the thing they would love to be able to do is is to tax it based on income, right? Yes, but they, right. But they can't really do that in a progressive way. So right. they're trying to come up with other metrics that they can use to approximate that. And one of them is, well, how many employees do you have that are making at least one hundred fifty thousand dollars? Right. Right. So exempting all salaries that are below $150,000 mm-hmm. really exempts a lot of companies right. from this, right? And, and Mosqueda's estimate was, was that, you know, between, you know, the $7 million payroll sort of floor and only taxing, uh, pay, you know, salaries of 150K and up, mm-hmm. that eliminates 97% of the companies right. in, in Seattle. Again, they're, they're a little fuzzy in the numbers because they don't, you know, you can't get a lot of specifics from the state on this, but right. but but there's that. The other thing is, in, you know, in their spending plan, mm-hmm. um, particularly for the first year, yeah, a lot more specificity. Year, for yeah. for for uh, for 2020, they actually want to dip into the city's two emergency funds. Yes, to to fund about 86 million dollars to spend this year, mm-hmm. and then use the first 86 million dollars that they earn. Uh, from the new payroll tax revenues next mm-hmm. year to repay that. Right, right. But that, you know, at this point, we're still all waiting for the Mayor Durkin to yeah. release her proposed rebalance budget. And yeah. chances are they're going to want to tap into that same fund. So right. and just, gonna, just, that needs to get reconciled. Yeah, I was going to say, just to put this in context, folks, the city is in the middle of this emergency budget rebalancing. It's going on right now. It's going to happen through the month of July. This 200 to 300 million dollar budget hole that we've been talking about for the past couple of months now, that's what the city's really trying to tackle here. And I think looking at this, there was a public hearing on the schedule for Tuesday of this week here on this rebalancing package. That's been canceled, and it's because we don't have a budget from the mayor just yet. And I think Councilmember Mosqueda is trying to play along here. She wants to wait on having that public hearing until. We see the mayor's budget and council members have a chance to respond to that. Your thoughts about that? Because I know the budget committee is going to be meeting again on Wednesday of this week. They're going to be talking a little bit more about this, but they can't get too specific because we don't have the mayor's numbers yet. Yeah. And and I think they were, my guess is they were close on having the numbers. Yeah. And then the whole situation with the protests happened sure. and the chop yep. and this big push to cut the police budget. Right, yeah, and fund yeah. other programs. And that yeah. really, that, that puts the mayor and it's going to put the council in a tough spot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I know there's a lot to talk about with that one. And this whole concept of having an inquest on what is spent on the Seattle Police Department, I'm sure is going to be continuing at the city council level here. But I wanted to talk to you about another piece to the puzzle here. Andrew Lewis, council member Andrew Lewis, has a proposal talking about a city-imposed tax on capital gains, the selling of stocks here. 
he is talking about an excise tax on sales of assets. So this would exclude real estate and retirement accounts and would be capped at 1%, generating around $37 million annually. So this falls under the umbrella of the wealth tax that's a, that the city of Seattle has been working on the past couple of years. That was a tax that was ruled unconstitutional last year by the state court of appeals, but it did leave open this window here, this option of a 1% tax on net income that I think Councilmember Lewis is trying to take advantage of with this new tax here. I wanted to talk about this because this would be something very novel for a city to try to pass to on its own, a capital gains tax like this. Well, and and there's going to be all sorts of legal challenges. Oh, yeah. This, this is, the, you know, a question about, you know, what what exactly is a capital gains tax is another mm-hmm. one of, the, of these big questions. And in, as far as the IRS is concerned and the vast majority of other states, a capital gains tax is an income tax. Yeah. Right? So now under this ruling that, that uh, the Court of Appeals handed down last year, yeah. that means that it wouldn't be progressive. It would have to be flat. Yes. And, you know, and at some level, that's still going to be progressive because capital gains are taxes that um, that wealthier people tend to have. Uh, right. Sorry, income that wealthier people tend to have rather Agreed. than straight yes. up wages. Mm-hmm. But then the, the issue here is that what the state, well, one of the many issues here is the state constitution says that uh, you have to tax at the same rate mm-hmm. an entire class of property. Yes, right? right. So then are capital gains a different class of property uh, mm. of income and therefore yeah. a different class of property yeah. than wage income? Mm-hmm. Ooh, I mean, that's going to, there, there, there is no case law that sort of explains how to think about that. Yeah. And, and Lewis is going a little further and he's sort of flipping over to the other side and saying that capital gains tax isn't an income tax, that it's mm-hmm. an excise tax. It says because you have to do this transaction where you actually have to sell it, right. then, then it's an excise tax on the, you know, on basically the transaction of selling it. But that is really unlikely to, to, to hold up in court. Yeah, so, I know. He, he, from the prosecuting attorney's office, of course, has thought through some of these issues, but there will be a lot more still ahead on this. I thought it was wise of him to, to carve out that piece for retirement accounts, to carve out that piece for real estate here to try to really focus in on these capital gains taxes but, that, but that, that you mentioned. It, but, 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 that makes go. it even harder. Right? <laughs> okay, okay. If, if he says, oh, capital gains, but but not mm-hmm. for sale of, of real estate. Right. Now it's, now it's you know, if it's income tax. Now he's taxes, picking and choosing. It's not a flat if, if tax it, at all. If yeah. it's income tax, then it's definitely not all, you know, covering the, the entire class of property, right? And it's definitely illegal. Wow. Well, I just just to wrap up on this whole revenue piece, Kevin, we've got this proposal from Councilmember Lewis. We've got this proposal from Councilmember Mosqueda. The Sawant Morales proposal, in some way, shape, or form, is still out there, too. Is there one that survives out of this? I know some council members have been backing Councilmember Mosqueda. I know that the business community, at least the Downtown Seattle Association, not happy about attacks on jobs, certainly, here. Do you have an idea about which one of these proposals might actually survive? Which one has the best chance of surviving, do you think? Uh, Mosqueda certainly, uh, you know, at this point has five council members, including herself, yep. as co-sponsors of it, right? Yeah. So so that is looking very, very good. There's yeah, lots, a couple of, more. There's, good there's, to go. there's lots yeah. of recover for everybody on that, yeah. right? Right. Um, Mayor hasn't said, you know, she's still noncommittal on this, but, yeah. you know, five, five is a really, really great start on that. And they have mm-hmm. an, enough labor and 
and business support. Yeah. They can probably, they can Expedia probably come out to say yes on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and largely there really aren't legal issues with it, right? There's some logistical issues, but there aren't legal issues. Um, yeah. Lewis's is not mutually exclusive from that. So okay. Mosqueda's and Lewis's could both pass, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Lewis's is really focused on, if you remember a few weeks back, the Third Door Coalition. Yes, right. right? Lewis participated, as did Mosqueda, mm-hmm. in their announcement. And yes. What he really seems to want to do with the money would raise from, from this capital gains tax is pump a bunch of money into permanent supportive housing. For right? the homeless, so, specifically, right. Yeah, which is what the Third Door Coalition is trying to do. Right, right. Huge pieces there. I guess what you're saying, it, it looks like this whole Amazon tax uh, discussion that we've been having over the ca- past couple months gets pushed to the side. Is that what you're sensing here? You mean, uh, if you're talking about specifically the Swanton Morales Yeah, 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 proposal, that's right. Yeah, I, I think at this point, you know, particularly since they wanted to pass that as emergency legislation that requires yeah. the mayor to to uh, to approve it, and the mayor has said that there is no way in heck she's she's approving yeah. it. Right? Don't you cuss you in know, front of me, Kevin? All right. Uh, I, you know, I, like I said several weeks back, that was dead <laughs> yeah. on arrival. It's still yeah. equally dead on arrival. Right? All right. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on to what's next. A very serious story here. We're talking about. CHOP, the Capitol Hill organized protest here, had a fatal shooting there very early Saturday morning, the 20th, a 19-year-old man dead, another young man critically injured. Seattle police had tried to respond, but were kept out. Kevin, I know there's still a lot flying around with this. We haven't heard the mayor speak out about this, this as of the weekend of Father's Day weekend. We haven't heard the chief of police speak out about this either, but we've talked about this before as an experiment in democracy did the experiment just fail? How do you look at that? Well, as you mentioned, there's still a lot forthcoming about this. Right? Yeah. We actually don't know who it was. Yeah, that, they're looking that, at some video, etc. Mm-hmm. They're looking at some video. The person escaped from from the scene, mm-hmm. and so you know, I, I think uh, I'm certainly trying to withhold judgment about exactly what happened and what sort of drove it. Uh, until we hear from that, it yeah. certainly raises a bunch of questions yeah. around. Um, you know what what public safety means mm-hmm. in a you know in a space like this. Yes, there there's disputed reports about whether uh, the the police officers were brought in or not. Uh, yeah. What what happened was you know they called nine one one. Yeah. And uh, the the um, Seattle Fire Department medical units came mm-hmm. to sort of the edge of the area, but at that point it was still an unsecured yes. shooting scene. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And policy for fire department and their, their medical personnel and their fire safety personnel is yep. they don't go into a scene until it's actually been secured when there's a hazard like that, when it's mm-hmm. like an active shooting scene. Yeah. There are acts of violence going in there. They don't go in until the police has actually secured that. Yeah. And the police have said, they showed up and they said that um, a, lar- a, a crowd of, uh, of, of protesters uh, prevented them from entering the scene. Yeah. And I think that still needs to be sorted about out mm-hmm. because there's some debut- disputes to the extent of how much of that really happened or not. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I haven't seen clear evidence either way on that. Yeah. So, you know, all this still needs to get sorted out. Yeah. And, and we need to really understand what happened. But yeah, these are the, these are the hard parts of things of, of experimental yeah. democracy, right? If you want to sort of do your own public safety, if you want to do your own medical, medical help, care, et cetera, yeah. Right, then you really need to be prepared for, you know, the whole range of what 
might yeah. happen. Yeah. And yeah. this was, you know, this this is a new thing for them, and there were some stumbles all around. There's certainly some yeah. stumbles for the police department, the fire department, and yeah. how they responded, how they talked about what they did. Sure, and it it's just it's disheartening because I think for better or for worse, and a lot of people have different reactions to what the chop is. This was a largely nonviolent group that was up there talking, having lectures, things of this nature, uh, almost a festival type atmosphere up there. But I think an important one politically too, and to see something like this happen, it's. Well, I think it raises the specter you're talking about here. At a certain point, there has to be a public safety piece to this that's recognized on either side. And when there aren't necessarily specific leaders from different groups or whatever else, it makes it very hard to do that. So this experiment, yeah, I guess very much a work in progress. I'm, it's just, it's terrible to see people get hurt and killed. Yep, it's, it's tragic. Yeah, yeah, we've we've got a lot still ahead with that. And I know we're going to follow that up throughout this week here, this fourth week of the month of June. So we'll continue to follow what's going on with the CHOP. But we did want to wrap things up here, hopefully on a lighter note, because as we are recording this podcast, we wanted to make sure that we let people know Father's Day is a very important day. I'm a dad. Kevin is, too. And uh, Kevin, I know you like making treats for your kids. You go first. I actually had one of my kids make a treat for me. But what, what do you got coming out of the oven? Well, you know, a few weeks ago, I, I made the um, Double Tree Hotel chocolate yes. chip cookies. Like their secret yeah, just recipe. released that on that released. recipe, folks. Yeah. And uh, I was making them again last night. And I realized after the grocery store closed that I was missing one of the ingredients. So oh, okay. I was supposed to use rolled oats in it, and I didn't have any. So I used oat flour instead, and they actually turned out pretty good. Okay, okay. A little different texture, but tastes about the same. Okay, that, that's an important piece. I have a daughter who, uh, inspired by Kevin, I should say, she uh, was a proud recipient of the Brave Tart book that Kevin sent our way not too long ago. She's freestyled on a couple of different recipes now. She made something, she only called them the Father's Day Surprise Bars. They look like kind of, okay, we got some chopped nuts on the top or whatever else. So start with a brownie base, peanut butter on top of that. And then what she has described as a marshmallow fudge on top of that. Not as thick and crazy as, uh, I love fudge because it's always crazy, but um, it's got a lightness to it that um, is absolutely delightful. And I'm going to take a little bite here, Kevin, just to give you the play-by-play. I'm going to do some cookie here. Mm. Wow. This, This is a daughter who knows me well. This is a gooey and chewy chocolate mess. <laughs> Always good stuff here. I got to say, Kevin, happy Father's Day to you and all the dads out there. I wanted to you say too. that. Happy to you Father's say. Day. All right. Absolutely. Folks, thank you for being with us here. And I wanted to say the next time you want to know what's going on local politics, we're here on Seattle News Views and Brews. So give us a listen and find out what's brewing. Reach us via email at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Please, please support us on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. And thanks, as always, for listening. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2020.